Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining me for turning a moment into a movement. I am your host, Jay Love, and thank you for joining us. I represent the Justice for Gerard movement. <clears throat> Gerard is my son who was wrongfully convicted of a crime, um, innocent, and still ended up in prison, served two years in the Michigan um, Department of Corrections, and he just recently passed away. And so we come here on Fridays to have this conversation still about wrongful convictions and injustice. We come here to educate and to motivate. And I wanna say hello to all those who are watching on YouTube and Twitter and later on Spotify. Thank you all for joining us. And today we're gonna to come, where we're coming to have a discussion about um, is police training being used as an excuse for misconduct. So this week we had a lot of um, things going on in the news from here in Michigan all the way to Mississippi, police shootings. Um, there were some that end up in with um, dying and then there were others who survived. But in all these situations that we heard about this week in the past week, training was part of the topic of either more training or the lack of training or too much training. So today, me and my guests, we're coming on and we're gonna discuss this. Um, is training being used as a excuse for misconduct? So right now, I'm gonna introduce you to our guest, but I see Ramatia is in the room, so I'm gonna bring her on, one of our panel members. Greetings, Ramatia. <laughs> How are you? Uh-oh, you don't have any sound, Rabatia. <laughs> Rabatia doesn't oh, have... Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, well, we'll just take these off. I'm happy to be here. Um, <laughs> I am the narrative transformer always. Uh, I am the founder of the Cho Choice Zone, where I encourage people to get in their zone, get in your, your path, your pathway, your purpose and make choices that are beneficial. And you know what, Jay, I'm discovering that as a people, as humanity, we don't often make choices that are beneficial for our communities. And especially when it comes to leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so glad that we're talking about this topic today. Um, being, um, I'm on the executive team for Michigan Coalition of Human Rights and uh, another Michigan Social Justice Network, uh, and really out here in the community helping others. I'm also a behavior interventionist by day, <laughs> but uh, I am here to help us change the uh, narrative yeah. on all of these things. You know, and you talk about police brutality and, and training and, and really, yes, what does that entail? Is it training? Is it training or is it the content of training? And 
Are we training to kill or are we training to serve? Uh, is there, you know, so yes. thank you so much for having me on today. I'm so excited. I know. I'm so glad you're here, Revitia. <laughs> so I see attorney Hugo, we're bringing in our next panel member. Greetings, attorney Hugo, Matt. Much love and respect all y'all, you know, and <laughs> love. Thank you again for letting me come on. Every week I'm going to say that. Because, <laughs> hey, like I told Reverend Pigney, send all hate mail, email, and letters to J-Love. Okay? <laughs> because I know, some, <laughs> I know some people don't like what's going on with me, J-Love, but you are our leader, J-Love. It's part of your responsibility. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> No, no, I mean, in all seriousness, I know we are an irritant. Us being mm -hmm. here bring issues to the public attention. You know, there are people, and I mean this with all sincerity, all joking aside, who would just rather us not talk about any of this, okay? Mm -hmm. Not bring any of this up. You know, we rocking the boat, we're making trouble, you know, you know, we we upsetting things and making people look bad. So I just want to say thank you, Jay Love and Reverend Tia. You know, and, and my good friend and colleague, Sam Real and everybody else is on here because we have to keep talking, you know, and, you know, I see you have www.hmaclaw.com. Once again, a shameless plug, you know, if you find yourself, your hoopity on Trouble Boulevard, the police is after your behind, park that hoopity on Mac Street. That's the way, that's your hookup. Park that hoopity on Mac Street www.hmaclaw.com is your hookup. Thank you so yeah. much. So, <laughs> You're welcome so much. <laughs> so I'm so happy to be here, J-Love, because the issue of this uh, police uh, stopping uh, Black people, people of color, is simply outrageous. It is mm -hmm. outrageous. Mm -hmm. You know, the killings and the maimings that go on. So I'm, I'm so anxious to get, get into this because I've been doing a series of presentations on how to drive to stay alive, you know, mm. aimed at, at, at black and brown people, uh, what to do in a situation like this. So um, here, uh, pr proud to be a member of the state bar here with you, not because I parachuted from heaven like some of my colleagues, but as I said, through the power of God and Jesus Christ came up from hell to be with y'all today. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay with y'all as long as the good Lord let me and, and Jay Love let me. So yeah. I'm proud to be. You ain't going nowhere, Tony. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud to be a member of y'all, and I love you. and look forward to the discussion. Right. So since you brought up Sam, we're going to bring yeah. Sam on. <laughs> hey, what's up? What's up? It's so great to be here with everyone that's spoken before me. Uh, I am the political director of the Michigan National Action Network, and I am on the real-time battlefield of Detroit on this very subject matter uh, when it comes to uh, issues like the uh, ill-fated, doesn't work, shot spotter, which will misidentify folks already has resulted in wrongful incarceration of some. And when you got a city like Detroit, which annually pays out millions of dollars in settlements, and settlements because of misconduct of the Detroit Police Department, it is a real-time playing field. We just did a press conference, the National Action Network, under the leadership of the Michigan president of the National Action Network, Reverend Charles 
Williams, and of course founded by a good Reverend Al Sharpton. We just did a press conference at the headquarters of the Detroit Police Department over the what, and I have to agree with her, over what Detroit City Councilwoman Mary Waters termed in execution by a firing squad by those that are Detroit police officers, five officers, a minimum of 38 shots for a mentally challenged black man in America's blackest and poorest city, Detroit. That, as Councilwoman Waters said, was an execution by firing squad. Jeff Fire never wanted to shy away from good terminology, immediately lifted the Councilwoman's terms and has filed a multi million dollar lawsuit, I believe, at least one's on the way, on behalf of the family. You know, I wrote an article on this very subject matter we're talking about here, training. And uh, do they use it as a scapegoat, as an excuse for misconduct? And let me tell you something, Jay Love. Mm -hmm. That article, the title of it, Attorney Mac and Tia, Little John, the title of it was Don't Call the Police. It was published in the uh, journal of the uh, 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 anti-poverty think tank based in Detroit, the Pulse Institute. Don't call the police because when you call the police, like that young man executed by Detroit Police Department firing squad in the last week and a half or so, when she called the police, she wanted help for her mentally challenged son. Instead, he got slaughtered, mm -hmm. executed by a firing squad under the auspices of the Detroit Police Department. The citizens of Detroit and America deserve much more than that. That's why I say don't even call them mm -hmm. until we have in place resources that will engage in treatment, not execution. But again, so glad to be with you this evening, Jay Love and the rest of you. Thank you, Sam. We're gonna bring in our last guest who is, um, Candidate for Washtenaw Sheriff, Miss Alicia Dyer. Hi. Hey, all. How you guys doing? <laughs> Introduce yourself, Alicia, and tell everybody about who you are and what you do and what you want to do. Yeah. So my name is Alicia Dyer. Um, I uh, worked at Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office for a total of 10 years. I was a road patrol officer for seven Um I grew up in Ipsy and I was a police officer in the community where I grew up and in doing the work on the ground, I saw a lot of corruption in our legal system. I decided to leave uh, road patrol and I went into my graduate studies. I got a public policy and social work degree and now I do community organizing um, with uh, Moses in Detroit and We Rock um, in Washington County. Yes. So I'm glad you're uh, here. Running, running for sheriff in 2024. Yes. So welcome. Um, I'm glad you're here. So you can shed, I know you can shed some light on the training. And maybe we can, you know, get some idea of what is really going on here. Um, I have a short, short video that I wanted to show you guys. Let me go to it right now. Here. It's okay. They're not feel bad about killing that guy. Yeah. It's clear from reviewing the police are one of the most deadly institutions per capita in the world. This page, which lists a series of indicators or cues that a civilian might be planning to use violence. The list is supposed to provide guidelines for anticipating when and if 
traffic stops could turn deadly. So I don't know if you guys saw those indicators, but Alicia, maybe you can um, give us some ideas of those indicators. Yeah. So, I mean, so first off, uh, you know, what I think, uh, you know, my, my heart goes out to the family of, of Porter Burks and, and all the families that have been harmed and, and, and uh, hurt by the justice system in this country. And, you know, something that I always think back on, you know, with the, the culture of law enforcement, the training is the foundations of it in this country. So understanding that, you know, I worked at a sheriff's office, sheriffs got their, um, their fame in the United States off mass incarceration and slave patrols in the South and oppressing unions in the North. And really all of law enforcement training practices, everything has that design, that systemically racist design to it. So something, a legal term, um, that we say sometimes is fruit of the poisonous tree. So if you make a traffic stop and the traffic stop was unjust, everything else gets thrown out. And I feel that we have to use that same lens with what we're looking at now with policing in America. If the, the root of it is, is racist and corrupt and wrong, then everything that comes after that needs to be looked at and reevaluated. And in thinking about, you know, like what the, the video clips that we just saw and even the, the training in the academy and the training that I went through when, um, I, you know, I was policing, it absolutely um, makes you, it, it almost, it's almost uh, attempts to uh, indoctrinate officers to be scared of people. So there's this, oh, don't shake anyone's hands. You never know what could happen. Um, if someone does this, this could mean that they're about to be aggressive. And that's really flooded through through your your um, training, whether explicitly or implicitly, um, which, I mean, it is 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 a huge huge issue. And so, you have a lot of officers. Um, they start really young. I started policing when I was 21, and I remember working. So when I got onto road patrol in a community where I grew up, that I never had a problem, you know, being in the community. I remember leaving the academy and of a sudden feeling anxious driving around. And I'm like, why am I so anxious when I grew up here and haven't felt that way before? And in reflecting back, I honestly feel like this, um, you know, even in the academy, like they, this theme of you could die at any second, you know, if, if, any traffic stop could be your last, even though you're more likely to die in a car accident off duty than you ever are to be harmed on the job. And so it, it's really looking at that from a, a holistic lens, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about that, um, like we saw Porter Brooks, um, the news conference from attorney um, James King this week about the, the incident in Warren, Michigan with the young gentleman. It seemed like it's a fine line between policy and humanity. And it's more policy and less humanity. And so when you see these things, um, the execution style shooting of Porter Brooks and the way um, the young man was treated and worn and the young 15-year-old um, that was shot in the head in Mississippi and on and on and on, you see these things and you wonder where is the humanity, you know? These are kids, these, you know, and when we, and we have discussed this a lot on this platform about the brain science. But even with a gentleman who is having a mental crisis, he's 22, he doesn't understand um, 
he's not in the state to understand your demands. And um, immediately he's a threat. You know, when I listened to the chief, he, he used the words threats. Um, he used all kinds of adjectives to describe. He story. used all kind of cover your ass adjectives that they always <laughs> use. I, I, I fear for my life, all that crap. See, like I said, I'm on the real playing field. I met, negotiated with Commissioner Bill Dwyer out in Macomb County, Warren, as we moved to change the composition of the Warren Police Department, given the changing demographics of Warren, where you got more and more black folks moving into Macomb and Warren. And we were successful in that. We could measure outcomes when Reverend Williams and I went out there and just met with him. The mainstream media flooded with us even meeting with him because of the history of Warren. But the history of the commissioners, Warren born in the Detroit uh, police department. What occurs as the candidate for sheriff just recently outlined in terms of how the training actually goes down is you dehumanize the people that you're charged with protecting. As a Vietnam honorably discharged Vietnam War era veteran, let me tell you, when you're trained by the United States military, when it was the 60s, and I went into the military in 65 from Fort Wayne in Detroit, the first thing they do in basic and everywhere, you're running around with boots on, a rifle talking about, I want to go to Vietnam, I want to kill a Viet Cong. Immediately, you're conditioned to dehumanize, which makes killing and abusing much easier. And believe it or not, that's a mentality that is driven into in the police recruits across the nation. Don't shake their hand. You just said it candidate. And, and and it's real important to understand what you just said, Jay Love. You live it every day. We li lived it year after year fighting the free uh, Gerard when I was doing that radio show. And I can tell you that until we instill what you just referred to as a, a, a level of compassion, maybe even have psychological screening before one is even given a badge, let alone a gun, to ensure that we're dealing with people who respect humanity and, and other human beings and value life, the killing will not stop. Mm. Until we can do a screening and, and, and screen out those that have racism in almost their DNA, generation after generation passed down. Uh, it's, it's tragic that the state of affairs uh, out here, and we have many black folk who have adopted white supremacist law enforcement mentality that makes them every bit as bad as a bull kind of back in the day in Alabama. Yes, I know you're right, Sam, because I, I posted something about it and someone said, well, you know, it's hard to be on his side when he, and I'm talking about what happened in Warren because he stole a car or, or, or whatever the yeah. case it was. And that's but, crap. Right. That's BS. That's again, more of the blaming the victimism ideology so pervasive amongst the law enforcement uh, community. Burks, he stabbed members of his family before. Look, if you can't disarm uh, someone with a, maybe a three-inch uh, knife, nothing else. I mean, you should not be in law enforcement. And they got very upset with that councilwoman when she said the people of Detroit deserve more than the Detroit Police Department serving as a firing squad executioner of someone that simply needed and crying out for help because of their behavior. Mm -hmm. That's why, again, I say don't call the damn police.
unless it's, you know, imminent harm for real is right there about to go down. Guy slashed the tire. Right. He's dead. And there's got to be consequences for bad police misconduct, bad policing. Mm -hmm. The National Action Network right now is calling for the identity of those five officers to, to be revealed. We also are calling for their uh, uh, suspension without pay. And they have to feel some consequences for taking the life. And it's not justifiable of our good brother Burks. I mean, guy needed help. Mm -hmm. In San Francisco, the police won't even come if it's clearly a mental crisis unless someone's life is in danger right then, imminently, uh, har imminent harm uh, uh, is, is being faced by them. They send out another uh, of type of, of alternative uh, uh, resource trained to de-escalate, trained to help, not execute. Right. Go ahead, Attorney Matt. Yeah. Can I say this? You know, uh, during my candidacy for prosecutor, before running and while running, I had an opportunity to do a tremendous amount of research and insight with some officers that I know that are genuinely good people. Good people, not for the deception, uh, you know, struggling, <laughs> swim, swimming uphill, you know, I mean, upstream, you know what I'm saying? And some of the insight that I garnered, not only from my own experience being black, is the problem. And one of the things I wanted to address, other people have addressed around public office, is that incestuous relationship between the police and prosecutor. Yes, I said it, incest. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> that incestuous relationship. You see what I'm saying? Because what happens is, and, and, and as a criminal defense attorney for all these years, I tell you, they are loathe to try and criticize a member of law enforcement. These prosecutors, and I'm, I'm not saying that about the current prosecutor, but I'm saying prosecutors in general, will go the extra measure to justify and legitimize the actions of law enforcement officers. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. And furthermore, in these contracts, and not every union is a good union, by the way, mm -hmm. in these contracts that these police officers have, you would be astounded how much protection the Detroit Police Department with their union has, okay? You'd be astounded the protections they have. You know, you know, a representative got a right to be there. Things don't have to be reported right away, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got layers of insulation that are built in by the collective bargaining agreement in the first place, that's problem number one. And you have a prosecutor or prosecutors who try to build their career on a percentage of conviction. Well, my office has got a 98% conviction rate. What the hell is that supposed to mean? That means nothing if those people are not actually guilty. That means right. nothing even if they are guilty, if they never receive justice and constitutional protection, it doesn't mean a damn thing. It don't mean a damn thing. All they doing is switching around decks on the Lido deck of the Titanic. That's all they're doing because the ship is going down whether they know it or not. So what I'm saying is for me, my observation is we got to start calling out that incest between the prosecutor and the police. They are not partners. No, they aren't. They work for a common goal and they're not supposed to be friends. Friends cover for each other. They make excuses. They lie. They turn the other way. <laughs> you need prosecutors who say, I'm not turning my head away for a damn thing. If the law is broken, 
if a police officer that smacked somebody's head up against the side of a car, oh, well, I was just trying to put him in the car and he was resistant, and the man got a seven-inch gash on his head, somebody is going to get charged. You understand? Mm -hmm. Somebody is going to get charged. And until we get prosecutors that have that kind of attitude, that incest and cover-up is going to keep on going on. Yeah. But Jay Love, it's the consequences again that must be suffered by, by these law-breaking law enforcement officers. Right. And to that end, those of you that are listening and tuning in to this broadcast, you, you gotta understand your role. Mm -hmm. You saw what just went down in Los Angeles. You saw when the people, the people went to that council me meeting and simply said, resign and shut it down. And what we've got to have is more citizen patriots willing to stand up and resist the power brokers that try to inflict their inhumane will upon the people. The people are capable of organizing and literally shutting down inhumane policing, shutting down inhumane prosecutorial offices. It can happen. Yeah. And the way it happens is, you know, you, you organize. When we organize, we win, okay? Mm -hmm. well, and, and that is not like a rhetorical saying. You've got to live and breathe the essence of organizing and confronting those that wear the, the badges and the guns. When you look at, what was it, Detroit will breathe. The city of Detroit just settled for a million dollars plus because of police misconduct in Detroit when those individuals were simply exercising First Amendment guarantees. And I can tell you right now, that shot spotter case, we've already got instances of, of, of wrongful incarceration where they're going to have to settle. And I can tell you that if there are no consequences, no consequences, this behavior will only exponentially expand and we'll have more wrongful incarceration, more executions by Detroit firing squad, wearing badges, carrying guns. And if we don't resist people, it may be your son, your daughter, your mother, your uncle or father next. Right. It's that real. Right. Reveteer? Yeah, you know what? Um, we have to know also the history of how this this has begun, you know, and I, I know Alicia had... Um, mentioned also the the entire history of policing but also we need to recognize that michigan has closed 36 mental institutions mental health hospitals psychiatric hospitals 36 since 1965 and so our effort to really assist people with mental illness has really declined you know overall and this is a very sad situation it doesn't mean that we didn't need to make a reform with the psychiatric hospitals because there were definitely some inhumane activity in the in those institutions, but we we didn't try to help people. Right. So what has consequently happened is that people who have mental illness have now filled the prison system, mm -hmm. and people need to understand that. Oh, back in was it 2015? There were a thousand only what they said at the time of this one study, it was a thousand police shootings and about 25% people who, who had, who were killed by the, by the shots of a police officer were mentally ill. And, and so this is, it's pervasive. 
it's it's pervasive and there's no training and and i i want to say what happened to the training they used to have a crisis intervention training for police and during that training they were supposed to be trained on mental health because there was a time when you could call the police if your loved one had a mental breakdown and was having symptoms you could call and get them assisted to the hospital this is not happening now and i'm gonna tell you a, an example um i saw that whole system change when i was working um with um mental health and mental health and i had an older lady she was in her 70s and clearly she was out of her medication and she was just not even five foot six a thin thin lady and at the time i was in oakland county and and i had to call the police to get assistance for her i thought they were going to assist her you know what they did they tased her mm. they tased her mm. they tased her because she wouldn't do what they said and she was cursing at them and i mean she was cursing at everybody that's what they that's what happens when when you're not mentally stable and they tased this old woman and i watched her go to the ground and i cried i cried and i said is this where we are today i can't get her help to the hospital and you know what they did they put her behind bars, 72 years old. They but, put her behind bars and then they said, I asked, well, is she gonna get any medicine? They they promised that, that they would give her medicine. You know what happened when her time was up in Oakland County? They let her out and she walked. And I didn't know what time she was coming out. They just said the release date and time and they treated her horrific. And guess what? When I picked that woman up, she still didn't have the right medication. But that's not surprising. I used to try, Hugo Mack, when I was finishing up law school at University of Michigan Law School, where I graduated and got a JD from, I worked in a prosecutor's office in Genesee County. I had the dubious distinction of trying all the mental cases in Genesee County under the leadership of the president of the National District Attorneys Association, the late prosecutor, Bob Leonard. And day in, day out, in probate court, I tried those cases. And more often than not, what treatment they, and medication they did get would turn them into zombies. It was not treatment. It was behavior modification, modification so you wouldn't be a problem for the system. Of, right. of those that were incarcerating you, not administering any type of treatment to help you become a productive member of society, which you can do. Uh, yeah. One of the most gratifying things ever happened to me, Jay Love, was many years later, a registered nurse with a with a, a master's degree also came up to me and asked me, was I me? She said, yeah, you know, I thought I was treating you, but it was your father. When I looked at him, I realized it was him at Hurley Hospital in Flint. My father died in Hurley Hospital in Flint uh, 
Uh, he, he had a lot of issues, congestive heart failure, renal failure, a whole bunch of things at the end. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that the young lady said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no. She said, you were a prosecutor in probate court and you demanded that the uh, judge and my attorney make sure that I was given real treatment because of my educational background and, mm -hmm. and, and my profession as a registered nurse. And I did mm -hmm. get the treatment but only because of my role as a prosecutor. We need right. prosecutorial staff trained and sensitive mm -hmm. to these mm -hmm. issues and not just processing. Oh, danger mm -hmm. to themselves or others. Move them over here, move them over there. Right. And they right. don't get the treatment. The 70 year old woman, you got the treatment you outlined to you. That is more often than not the norm. That And the county jail, Wayne becomes a psychiatric holding facility. No treatment a holding facility for folks crying out for treatment. Yeah, we can say England didn't do this, England didn't do that. He's been gone several Democratic governors ago. And the, the Democratic Party has to quit being hypocrites, spouting all that progressive uh, mantras that they spout. And we need to be able to measure outcomes with that party too. What are you actually doing to benefit your constituents, and sometimes it's very damn little. That's right. That's right. That's right. And you know, inmates while incarcerated cannot vote. You know, in the state of Michigan, you know what I'm saying. So, uh, fortunately, you can vote coming out of the penitentiary the penal system, in Michigan. Some states you can't, but it still takes an effort to do that. And I just want to co-sign what uh, uh, Brother Riddle just said there. You know. Um, my life is an open book. I mean, I've, I've, I had a 10-year penitentiary experience. And I'm telling you that a good 93% of people in a, in, in a prison, they're coming out. All right? They're coming out. And I'm telling you right now, every penitentiary I was at, there was one constant. It's called a medline. A medline. And they would give you passes. Some The, the, the legal term in prison was a detail to show up to Medline one, two, three times a day. You talk about people looking like zombies. These people was lined up like they was getting government checks. And what I'm saying is they, they go up to a window, they have a little cup of water and then pills. And they would take them pills that don't, don't look at what they are. The, them people could be putting cyanide in there. They don't know, they don't know. And what I'm saying is those same people would leave from that Medline and go walk the track. Just walk the track, and, and and a track in a in, in a prison is just like a big oval, you know, a, a big oval. Just walk the track, talking to themselves, you know, you know, shoes all broke down, tattered, you know, and you know it would break my heart, break my heart because what Sam Riddle said is right. These people, at least in the Michigan Department of Corrections, they are concerned with controlling you while you are there. It's not about mental health treatment. It's about controlling you while you were there. And if you doped up, you medicated, less likely you are to cause a problem to them. Now, you may cause a problem to yourself or your bunkie or some other inmate in your unit. You may do that, but you damn sure gonna cause a problem for them officers. So, you know, that's what we got to deal with. Right. And I agree because I, I remember Gerard calling me when he first got the uh, maybe a month or two in there and he was saying they was trying to give him pills. And he was like, Ma, I don't want to take these pills because they all they do is sleep. And I said, don't take them. 
you need to figure out how not to take them. We going and he said, I don't want to sleep. I don't want to be in here asleep. But that's how they was treating people yep. who they felt had some kind of mental breakdown or mental issue is give them pills that make them sleep. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, um, these are all really good points. And, you know, something I, I also wanted to highlight, I think about, you know, with the, the training and, and how, you know, it's really the overall system that that needs to change in so many ways. And the what you said, Jay Love, about the the humanity, you know, so I remember I responded to a call in Ypsilanti and um, a mom called, her daughter was having a mental health crisis and I, I got there and when I walked in, they were yelling in the living room area and then the daughter went and grabbed a knife and then started running at us with the knife and instinctively didn't even think about it. You know, I grabbed her arm and then the mom was able to break the blade off the knife. So then it just left her holding the handle. And then we were able to safely get her to the hospital. She was having a mental health crisis. But for me, drawing my gun was not an option. Like I cared about this family. I knew them. And, you know, I think about, you know, the the issues of when you have police out in the community and they're, they're not from the community or they don't... Um, uh, understand or, or know people in the community, how that can really create issues of harm. But then even the training, I violated training. Now I could have gotten in trouble for how I operated in that situation. Cause what a sergeant could have said was it was an officer safety issue. How come I didn't get space and draw my gun and follow the tactical training? And that is the problem because if it, what I tell some of the other officers I talked to about this is if it's your sister or your mom or your brother that has a knife at your home, are you going to go get your gun and shoot them? Like you probably aren't. And so we have to really think about that because the way that they're saying that we should operate there's no humanity in that. And so what I always tell people is I really believe that we need to reduce unnecessary contact altogether <laughs> because we bring a gun to every situation that we go on. And then, to, to, and then you have, you know, the, the bias, the, you know, racism that there's uh, P, cops got PTSD. Sometimes cops are sleep deprived. There's been research about um, being sleep deprived is equivalent to being a 0.08, like, which is a, a the legal limit where you shouldn't be driving. Mm -hmm. And so, and they, you, so you're sleep deprived, you got PTSD and you got a gun. It's a hazard. It's a, it's a walking hazard for the community. And it becomes an even more hazard for black and brown folks as we've seen nationally. Um, because you know, there, there's not a, a pattern where young white girls are getting shot by the police at the same rate. It's just not happening. And so mm -hmm. there's, there's that component too, um, and even sleep deprivation can exacerbate bias that that people have. Um, and so when you think about that totality, you know, we have to invest in unarmed community response. You know, there you go. the the, yeah. the the officer, you know, some officers have been CIT trained. They've gotten all the training in the book and something still happens because in that moment you can have all the training in the world, but you still have a person with a <laughs> When unarmed community responders can operate in a very different way, a safer way, a more humane way. And the roots of, of the unarmed community response system that can be created in a community are not going to have the foundations that law enforcement has. And so, you know, Jay, oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, so I, I fully, I think that instead of trying to keep the police 
involved in mental health, we really just need to all out invest in unarmed community responders. That That's my point with the article I wrote, don't call the police. Jay Love, for example, what Aisha just said, and I want to ask you, how would your, your sheriff's department look? Because you see, the more confrontations, contact we have between armed police officers and in particular, the black and brown community, the higher the likelihood that someone's going to get shot, killed by the police. Right. And we need to minimize those contacts until they really know what the word de-escalate means. And right now, right now in Detroit, the police do not have a concrete policy where we can see a de-escalation practice in terms of how they conduct themselves on the streets of Detroit. That's the problem with that racist doesn't work shot spotter. They'll say there was a shot over here. They'll go over there in the black community. You aren't going to find them in any white community. And they'll just start uh, stopping and frisking folks, irrespective of constitutional <laughs> guarantees that they shouldn't do that. But well, there's a group, we heard a shot over in this area, we think, and, and the data is so unreliable. The system doesn't work, but it increases the frequency of contact between armed police officers and members of the community. And believe me, members of the community are going to lose the more contact there is between armed police officers and members of America's blackest and poorest city, Detroit, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, 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 and how would your department, if you're sure, this subject matter we're talking about here, how would your sheriff department look? Yeah, so for one thing, it would be reducing the unnecessary contact. So I don't think that, you know, police administrators and sheriffs do have the power to tell the cops what to do. And so, but what, what, what you see happening is you see, um, sheriffs and police administrators in cahoots with local municipalities where they'll use cops as revenue generators. And so what they want the cops to do is they want the cops to go out and work, work, work. So in any free time that you have, go out and find traffic stops, go out and, and search for crime, which is really honestly, foundationally, a very racist mindset from, from way back in the day that we're still perpetuating. And now it's, it's policing for profit. Mm -hmm. And so what we really need to do is administrators and sheriffs across the U.S. need to put enact policies that say, do not pull people over for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and do not, you shouldn't be out there searching for traffic stops in, 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 a, in a very predatory way. And often there's times I've even talked to officers where they're tired of being told that they have to go out and work, work, work. Like they're tired of going call to call and any spare moment they're expected to make these traffic stops. And it's not about safety. It's about profit and it's about numbers. And so when police administrators and sheriffs um, evaluate their employees on how many tickets they're writing or how many arrests they're making. What that does is it incentivizes that behavior. And so another thing, not only changing the policy around traffic enforcement and reducing the unnecessary contact, but also changing the way that you're evaluating your employees on their productivity. Because I think that is um, a, a severe issue. And we know nationally traffic stops are extremely dangerous situations. So why are we forcing those interactions when even if something doesn't happen, uh, even if the traffic stop ends and, and no one is harmed physically, even the trauma of being on the traffic stop, right? And so right. we need to think about that more intentionally because we're basically 
if you're pulling someone over, sometimes profiling, sometimes pretextual, or sometimes because you want to look productive and put something down in the log so your administrators don't get mad at you. And when you're doing that, even when nothing bad happens from the traffic stop, you're still causing a bunch of trauma for the people in the car. I think mm -hmm. the majority of society would doesn't love getting stopped by the police, right? And for some people, they're thinking, am I going to live or not? And that's that's wrong. Like, right. we, we need to make sure we're we're intentional about how we're showing up in the community. Right. The officers have P PSTD. We do too. Watching all these videos and, you know, all these news reports every night. And then when you, you see those lights behind you, the first thing you're not, you thinking like, am I going to make it <laughs> through this traffic stop? I mean, that's real. Yeah, it's real. Uh, I have a video, you guys. Dick Gregory okay. said something years ago, God bless the dead. If you attack insurance companies and the police pensions, you will see a deceleration. Because he said, it's funny, you never see black cops accidentally keep killing white kids. Not that they're more spiritual or smarter. They understand that white people are not going to tolerate it. And the way that you don't tolerate things in capitalism is attack the money. If your police force is misabusing and using you and they don't look like you, find ways to attack their money. Find ways to attack their unions, their pensions. Find ways to attack the city's money and you'll see change. Dick Gregory said something. Cool. That was Mike. That's generic consequences 101. That's what I was talking about earlier when I talked. And remember that phrase, please, generic consequences 101. Yeah. And footnote me properly, please. Right. But anyway, right. the point I'm making is that there have to be consequences. Who was that dude? Was that some dude named Mike or something? Killer Mike, yeah. Killer Mike, yeah, yeah. <laughs> some days I'm not overwhelmed with him, but he's pretty good there. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Attorney Matt. Yeah, well, and and the thing of it is, is that for me, part of the the big problem I've had in the in the years that, that I've been in criminal defense work is getting people and 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 really, uh, you know, especially people in my, my own community, to buy into the fact that there's nothing mystical about putting on a uniform all right uh that policeman or policewoman puts on the, that that badge that gun that shirt those trousers whatever that is the same way anybody else does and outside of a personal ethic a personal ethic there is nothing to separate you from that basic instinct of that man or woman with that badge or gun no there isn't no there isn't because the system is already designed, already designed with the presumption of rightness with the police. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so the the thing that I have a hard time with, and when some of these prospective jurors are being honest, say, I really don't think the police would have stopped Jamal uh, Robinson if he hadn't have been speeding. I, I just I don't so see why they would do that. You know, and police will have that mountain themselves. You know, we've never seen this man before, this woman, uh, you know, our, our, the, the patrol officer, not familiar with them. They stopped him simply because of, of, of suspicious crime. And sometimes that may be true, but far too often in my humble experience, there's been an ulterior motive behind that. Yes, there has. Yes, there has. But it's so damn hard. It's like trying to look at a tulip buried under 50 tons of cement. It's hard to get to see that, you know. Um, and and our people simply, I, not yet, have gotten to the point of really wanting to buy into that, you know. Um, and so, 
part of our problem is us. I mean, to be honest, it is us, you know, so. You know. Wait a minute, what do you mean by that? What I'm saying is, is that we need to understand that we cannot just count on other external forces that know very little about us, but police us to actually protect us. Okay. And so, and so when, when we come in, for example, you or I being a juror, when I ask people, is there something about a police officer that makes you believe or think that they're more believable than a plumber or, a, or, or an electrician? You know, most people say no, but deep down inside, when I talk to people, I think there's that presumption of rightness anytime you're dealing with the police. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, been, we've been conditioned to our own genocide. Right. <laughs> Go ahead, Rabbit Yes, yes, Sam. We we have we we're wait softly killing ourselves. Um, yeah, 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 buddy. We're, we're doing it to ourselves, and you know what I what I find just mind boggling is that Michigan continues to be one of the most antiquated systems. Now you know not only in the country, but in the world internationally. As far as policing is concerned, as far as so as as far as justice is concerned. And so my question is, and I, I pose this because I want us to really start thinking, as far as being in Michigan, do we at all research to see what is working? What has where where has reformed work? You know, so Consequently, in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, they um, have taken over a million to from the police budget and reallocated it to community units, to units that specific, are specific for domestic altercations, to to, to uh, a whole unit that is that is really geared toward mental health and see this, mm -hmm. this is my thing is that i just don't believe that the police can do it all mm -hmm. no you can't depend them to do it all because no. you use the word training jayla they are not trained or educated to do any of it it no, must no. be inflicted upon them from the bottom up from those yes. that are tired of being victims of bad policing, tired of being victims of bad politicking, yes. you know, uh, tired of being victims of the profit motive. I mean, yes. it, it, it can happen, but like you said, we got to do our homework. You know, I backcountry ski in Colorado. And when we go out there sometimes, we do what's called breaking trail. That means there are no groom trails with machines uh, uh, anything. You have to break trail. You have to, you know, break your way through the, the, the snow, watching out for the avalanche potential, of course. But the point is, is that we need to break trail in Michigan, in Ypsilanti, uh, in, in Detroit, in Flint. We need to break trail with new policies, new policing, new politicking, and that's not going to occur when someone says, oh, if we take money from the policing, or we do from police for mental health, uh, uh, for, for, for non-armed response teams, for non-armed response teams, are we defunding the police? That's going to kill my political career. And we have to make 
we, we got to normalize language that doesn't penalize, but it gets the uh, 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 policies implemented. See, politicians and the people that make policy, I mean, they tend to, to, to walk through and the, the, the woods of the status quo very gingerly and not upsetting the status quo. Mm -hmm. and, and that is diametrically opposed to what is needed today, right now. Right, instead of 8 million for the speakers in the sky, you can use those for treatment programs and, you know, all other- Five to four, Detroit City Council didn't buy into that. Uh, they, they Five to four. And uh, well, I could get into that all day long. But anyway, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it. Go ahead, yeah. Lisa. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I, we're actually fighting right now in Ipsy Township um, over license plate readers. They're trying to put 60 to 70 license plate readers in Ipsy and Ipsy Township just and and just that area um and you know the the current sheriff's office has agreed to use the technology if the township buys it so we've been organizing trying to get the township not to purchase the technology but in doing that we've been following the shot spotter organizing really closely and, and you know unfortunately um you know it, it really sucks that the the votes didn't go i think the way that they should have but you know it goes back to again we keep trying to expect giving the police more tools and gadgets and investing in things. It's, it's very reactive. And if we don't invest in front end prevention, if we don't invest in um, unarmed community responders, we're, we're never going to have safety. If, if, if what we were doing was working, we would have safe communities and, and yeah. still see things happen. And it's, I think that when you um, flood an area, you, you basically are saying, um, hey, we're not going to have resources here, but here's a whole bunch of cops. You know, right. and people instinctively are going to think that that's the option is cops, right? Um, and, you know, like looking at the unarmed community responders nationally, we know these models work. And something that we're starting up in Washtenaw County, a lot of organizers are doing some amazing work um, around CROS, which is Coalition for Re-Envisioning Our Safety. And so they're working on forming an unarmed community response unit. But then you know, sometimes they, they get pushed back from police administrators. And what we really should be doing is asking ourselves collectively, if the goal is safety mm -hmm. and if the goal is, front, you know, making sure that, that people are not harmed in, in neighborhoods and communities, then we have to work together and start doing things on the front end. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be a risk when you involve law enforcement and it should not be the de facto, um, you know, community response. The fact that, you can call 911 and you have a police come, but you can't do that with doctors or nurses or, or, or therapists or anything else. I mean, that in and of itself is an issue. So it's like a societal. And I know we're getting close to wrapping up here, J-Love, but, you know, this whole militarization of the police department as being the answer to stop gun violence and crime is simply out of whack. You mm -hmm. gotta address the breeding grounds of crime and violent behavior. You've got to attack the poverty. You've gotta attack schools that don't work. You've gotta address the issue of illiteracy. You, you, there are so many other factors that go into the breeding grounds of, 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 of crime. The dysfunctional black family, we've gotta address that issue internally if someone white says that you call them a racist but the reality is that we've never been in a greater state of dysfunctionality of the black family than we are in 2022 
throughout America, whether it's urban or rural. The structural racism, Detroit just admitted that when three, I-375 was built, it was a manifestation of systemic racism, structural racism. That's not me that said that. They officially said that and said, we're going to right that wrong by paving over, filling up that I-375 corridor and putting up something similar to the Avenue of Fashions. Well, they don't talk about the fact that when I-375 was built, you destroyed structurally sound black families and they were dispersed. And suddenly, instead of owner-occupied housing, you saw rental housing increase. You saw the destruction of stable black families that has had a generational impact in terms of the increase in crime and violence and just the whole piece that destroys our humanity. And they got away with it. They admitted they were wrong, but they cannot say we're going to correct that with that one act. So, you know, when when the city admits that it engaged in structural racism, then the people have to come up with the answer for how to correct your systemically racist behavior pattern. And we can do that. Right. Attorney Matt. Well, the other thing I wanted to say is, is this. Um, part of the problem is uh, some of the quote unquote leaders in, uh, in the black liberation movement, whatever that means, mm-hmm. have actually been allowed to, to, to monopolize terms. I mean, for example, this thing about, you know, defund the, the police. See, some people have, have, have used that and actually mean defund and destroy police. In other words, we, we don't believe in any kind of a police force at all. And, and, and the problem is when we don't keep check of people that are supposedly in the, in the forefront of the movement to make clarification of terms very important because what's happened now is the racist backlash to that is, well, you know, you want a, a policeman, you know, well, then don't worry about calling that, call a hippie or call a drug dealer. And oh, there, yeah, was somebody, call a crackhead. There, there was some, there was some <laughs> senator or yeah. somebody recently in the news that talk about the Democrats want to give rewards to the people that are out there committing crime in the first place. Uh, y'all, y'all educate me on that. It was some, some elected official that had, yeah, that's the guy who's running, I think, in Tennessee, oh. and he he made that. So it basically, if you don't want to police, then call a crackhead, you know, yeah. instead of no, yeah. that's not what people saying. And although you know, uh, I what's his name, Gary Gary Chambers is running against him, and okay. so he he made it like you know, call a crackhead, like and. And all the things he was showing was, you know, black people and these crimes and stuff. So you made it about race. You that's know? Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's the whole piece. The role fear plays in bad policing. I mean, they got those votes from the Detroit City Council. And that bad decision was driven by fear pushed by the Duggan administration and the Detroit police chief. See, they put up pictures of people that have been murdered and killed, like ShotSpotter is going to save one life. It won't, because ShotSpotter is after the shots have been fired. Right. The crime's already gone down right. if there was a crime. But if, if, again, if you're not willing to take on Detroit Police Chief White, Mayor Duggan, if you're not willing to take on the poverty, the structural racism, the illiteracy, I mean, and those very factors also prevent early detection of breast cancer, where black women die 40% more than uh, white women. 
uh, they're all roadblocks in terms of our very longevity, lack of it. I mean, and, and, and again, we have to have leadership in position. Sheriff, like you, candidate, I like calling you candidate, <laughs> but the point I'm making is guess what mainstream media will do with you? They'll ignore you. And you, you, we, you, we have to be creative enough to capture their attention so that your true agenda can be discussed uh, and, and in a serious form. Uh, the mainstream media is so complicit with bad policing and the imaging of bad policing, making heroes out of these wannabe cowboys that will kill you rather than give you an aspirin. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And, and, and we've got to expose bad media, too, in this yeah. process because of their role in shaping the opinion of untold millions and millions throughout this nation. Right. They're dependent on your fear. Fear, false evidence, appearance. That's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> They're dependent. Yeah. And then you said something else you go back before we get off here. And that is uh, uh, about the language used by those that uh, claim to be uh, black liberation or liberation forces or progressives or woke or whatever. You look at those jack leg handkerchief head uh, folks that push Black Lives Matter, buying mansions and, and pocketing the money and having a good time. They pimped and played us as much as the poverty program pimps of the 60s did when the dollars rolled in. That's mm -hmm. right. Pimps! I got another killer, Mike. Um. In terms of being punitive, I've often heard politicians talk about coming down on crime. Police officers that are, that are guilty of these crimes should serve no less than life in jail in terms of murdering someone. Police officers that do this should have their pensions cut off and paid to the families of those murdered, and the taxpayers don't need to keep paying these suits off. And last but not least, we need to make police officer training longer than six to eight months. It needs to be like a junior college, at least a couple years, and you need to either be reflective of or come from the communities you're policing. Because if not, what you're setting up is a hunter and prey situation, and I think that's what's driven American police. You know... Generic Consequences 101, <laughs> analytically sound. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. And if you listen up, you can hear it in Detroit. Yes. You can hear it from Ypsilanti, from Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That's and right. we don't do TikTok. <laughs> but you find a lot of all your information in our video. <laughs> all we yeah. need is these 30 seconds, one minute videos, and they uh, say, No, it's cool. It works. I'm not against that. It works. Mm -hmm. I built a career off 30 second spots for other people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It works. Alicia, go ahead. What do you think about what um, Killer Mike? Yeah, like especially the, you know, the part about you know, the length of, of training and the officers being from the community um, where they work and, and, and not even just like move there because what you see with residency requirements, honestly, is you see cops all move to the same neighborhood and mm. they're, they're really not like necessarily in the community. I think it's different when you hire people from the community. And then I want to be, I think this is a harm reduction, but it doesn't change the fact that you still have a system that's inherently flawed. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because people get so defensive over, over this when, you know, but if you think about like uh, the analogy about if a pilot 
is is crashes an airplane and kills 50 people on board. No one is like, oh, well, you know, the, the, that was a bad apple. No, they go after Delta, right? They're like, what what is going on here? Why did this happen? How did this happen? And let's make sure this doesn't happen again. And yeah. so I think that we need that same lens. And often I really believe too is looking at the the police administrators and how they perpetuate some of the the, the culture and, and um, the the things that happen with with officers in the community because I think that's absolutely a problem as well and you know you know one of the reasons that I'm running for sheriff and um, and to be clear this is a, like what Sam was saying it's absolutely true that it's really hard to run on an authentic platform. Um, and get the backing that you need because you, you're going up against a lot of power. And you know, I'm definitely, I'm not doing this alone. And this is definitely going to be a community driven, um, people powered campaign. But in doing it, what we can do is we can reduce a lot of harm and reduce a lot of potential harm that can be caused. And then not only that is we got to go back and say, hey, we're wrong and we're sorry and admit the things that we've done and come up with a plan with people harm to to make amends for that, it, you know, if possible. Like that has to happen because mm -hmm. that's the whole, you know, other issue as well. And yeah. offer and offer the space for healing. You yeah. know, you can't just say, oh, I'm sorry. We're going to dig this freeway back up and put up a plaque and say who used to be here. You know, <laughs> no, but you're you're absolutely right. And you also have to have a conceptual frame of reference for the history of a thing. Right. The police were not set up to protect black folks in America's blackest and poorest city. Policing, slave chasing was set up to control us, not to protect us. And generations of control dominate the policy making of policing in America. Policing was not set up again, I repeat, to protect us, but to control us and keep us in line. Get to that. Get to that, Iron Mike or whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Hey, I guess what? Okay. When, you, when you don't say anything about what happened to one group of people, it spreads to you. You know, it's not just black people. It's all no, no, race matters all the damn time. And with exactly. me in Detroit, it's about black people. Exactly. Be clear on that. Oh, I'm absolutely okay. Clear. School, school. <laughs> I'm, I'm with your spiritual thing, you know, burn some sage. I am right at okay. <laughs> okay. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I love you. I'm not gonna love you no less. Burn some damn sage. Okay. I see uh the commissioner was on here, William Davis, and he was he even put out that 75% of Detroit police do not live inside the city. They don't again. This is not set up for Kumbia here. Those Republicans knew what they were doing when they did away with residency. Mm -hmm. See, they operate with the ideological history of the slave chaser in mind. The objective is to control, to protect their wealth. Not to protect us, to protect their wealth, right. their well-being. Not to protect us, but to control us. Exactly. Yeah, and, and we did that to ourselves, too. Some of us who wanted to live elsewhere, some of us who did not understand the why that was a requirement. Why did Coleman A. Young say, this is what we're going to do. If you want to work for the city of Detroit, you must be a resident of the city. And so when I was growing up, I grew up not realizing that how much racism was outside of Detroit. 
my mother forced me to go outside of Detroit so I could get a feel for it. Because in Detroit, no matter where I went, somebody like me was at the helm of that particular institution. They were running the city council and they were running it well, so it seemed. And they were in all of the different um, leadership roles. They had companies. All the, the Shell gas station at the corner of Oakman and Livernois was black owned. Yeah. And so there was ownership in the city. So I did not know anything different growing up. My mother forced me to go outside of Detroit so you can see not to live there, but to have experience there. So you can see this is not going, it's not like this out here. Now, then what happened? Oh, we wanted, we wanted to live outside the city. We wanted, and I just knew, I said, Coleman is probably turning over in his grave. That time, that time when we decided to go to the He's probably turning over in his grave at the behavior of his son on city council, too. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> to change his damn name. Okay. <laughs> We, we changed that. We changed that whole law just so we could go live outside of Detroit and still keep our income based upon the people who live in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and we still give little Coleman room to grow. But it's, but it's getting late. It's getting late in the ball game. Uh, I got to be running, Jay Love. I got to okay. get back to Detroit. I'm in East Lansing now. You see the Spartan shirt. But uh -huh. tomorrow at noon, I'll be in the big house cheering on my other school I graduated from when we'll be saying, Go Blue! Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Yeah, I, I got to run, but I loved it. Good luck in your campaign. Stay strong. And uh, Attorney Mack and Tia, love all of you. Thank you so much. Love you. Oh, Thank you, Sam. Much love respecting. Okay, <laughs> there it is. Okay. God, God bless, Sam. So, Attorney Mack, we're going to wind it down, but go ahead. <laughs> you, know, you know, a couple things. A couple things. First of all, too bad Sam had to get off the, the broadcast. I want to let him know. Now, did I hear that man talking about he backcountry skiing in Colorado? Did he yeah. say that? Yeah. And, and he the trail. <laughs> You know what? I want to say something to Sam Riddle. Sam, I hope you're listening or somebody replay this. Sam Riddle talking about he in the backwoods of Colorado, you know, breaking trail. That man must feel like a raisin in a bowl of milk. And what I'll tell you is, is this. <laughs> Sam Riddle is about to be the old back in the backwoods with his black behind up there avalanche. You know black people don't ski. So <laughs> come in there. I'll tell you one thing. If their avalanche come and they say they couldn't find Sam's body, we need to initiate an investigation right away. Because <laughs> black as he is and white as that snow is, ain't no way in hell you can't spot his body. So I'm going to say that. So the other thing I'm going to say is, is this. I'm going to say is, is this. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Alicia, you know what? When the, when it's time to absentee vote your name on that ballot, you got my vote from right now. So what I'm what and, and I mean that for real. I mean that for real. And so the thing of it is, is that I want to encourage all of you and I encourage myself and keep on bringing that message, you know. And so I'm I'm just I'm I'm my heart is full, J Love. 
Thank you for having this platform. Thank you for Alicia for step, stepping up for what is right. Thank you, my sister Tia. And like I said, I'm gonna tell you about Tia's daddy one day when, when we get some time. Uh -oh. so, <laughs> hey, hey, that man, that man love his daughter, boy. I say that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you ladies be blessed. And you know, uh, we're gonna keep on with the struggle. God is love. And the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Remember yeah. that. It yeah. bends towards justice. So, hey, you know, I love you and God bless you and prayerfully and I'll be with y'all next week. Yes. Alicia. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this has been great. Um, and I really appreciate this conversation. Um, I want to shout out Silent Cry. Um, Shawana Vaughn, they're doing some healing um, work. Yes. Hold on, Alicia. I got. I might okay. as well put All the right. banner up saying right. that you're saying it. Go ahead. All right. Yeah. So I just wanted to shout that out. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate you all um, having me on today. Thank you so much. Yes. What Alicia was talking about is tomorrow. Um, Shawana Vaughn, who is, you know, no um, stranger to us. She's having a healing response tomorrow in the neighborhood where um, Porter Brooks was uh, murdered and uh, for the whole entire community. So join us tomorrow. It starts at 2 p.m. The location is Littlefield between Eden, Eden and uh, what's that, Chalafant at 2 p.m. And also to um, the Wrongful Conviction Annual Summit 2022 is coming up October the 29th at from 12 to 4 p.m. This is going to be a great event. We invite everyone. If you were at the one last year, you know it, it, that one was awesome. Please join us this year. This one is going to be just as awesome, if not better. So join us for the Wrongful Conviction Summit. Um, the information, if you need to call for information, dial 734-252-6075. And um, Reverend Tia, did you have anything to add before we go? I'm just so grateful. Today's conversation was, was just, I mean, it was on fire. I believe that we are definitely getting somewhere. We're changing the narratives. And I'm just saying, people, be careful of what you're listening to, what you agree with, and get the information first. Thank you to all of our supporters. And thank you. Thank you, Alicia and, and Attorney Mac, the Maxter. And of course, <laughs> J-Love. Well, I'm see you all tomorrow. We will be at Shawana's event tomorrow. It's very important. We talk about trauma. We have to talk about the issues in our community and mental health is definitely one of them. Right. We need each other to survive. We have to support each other, love each other, respect each other. So, yes. So thank you, everyone who joined us today. I will hold on one second. Oh, Prison Nation said thank you, Miss Dwyer, Miss Little John, Attorney Matt. And yes. host they love. <laughs> Thank you guys. And uh, yes. we'll see you next week on Turning a Moment into a Movement. Good night. All right. Good
Right. I didn't even come.